0: As I read those very words off that page, this is the perfect introduction, of course, to our time in the Word of God tonight, especially those words of the chorus. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. That's really a prayer, isn't it? Oh, let the ancient words of the Word of God impart impart to us spiritual truth so that we have changing lives. And that really is the prayer of our hearts, or should be, as we open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I think it would be good for us if we turned back to verse 1 of chapter 4 and read from Verse 1 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, all the way through verse 24. So you follow as I read in the English Standard Version of our Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. And were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Father, we pray tonight that you would lead us into this truth, the truth that we are to be changed by, and we pray that as we are changed by it, you are therefore glorified by that change, because we are progressively being renewed in the spirit of our minds to the knowledge, the mature knowledge of the Son of God. And we pray that we would come ever closer, even tonight, in that knowledge and in that maturity. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. If you remember last Sunday night, we talked about verses 17 to 21 in detail. And you remember that I said, by way of the outline points, number one in verses 17 and 18... Paul says, don't think like non-Christians think. And you remember, we asked the question, well, how do non-Christians think? And there were four things that Paul told us in verses 17 and 18 that non-Christians think about, or that which even characterizes their thinking. And you remember what those four things are? Well, the first was this, that they walk around... They do what they do in the futility of their minds. That was the first one. They are futilely minded. You remember I said to you that that particular word futile is also translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes with that very same word that Paul uses here when he uses the idea that all of life is vanity, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. And so non-Christians live their lives in utter vanity with the meaninglessness of their thinking. And that's what Paul says here in the first part of verse 17. And then he also says that non-believers, unbelievers, they have darkened understanding. They don't have the illuminated minds that we possess by the Holy Spirit's virtue in our lives, they have nothing but a darkened understanding. And then thirdly, Paul says, they have a culpable ignorance. How does he say it here? They are darkened, according to verse 18, in their understanding, and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But it's a culpable ignorance, Paul says. And by that... Or because of that, they are alienated from the very life of God. Life is that idea of animation. And God gives animation to individuals. He's created us and He infuses us with life and breath. And He infuses our minds with the animation to think and to have rationality. And when non-Christians think in the rationality of their minds, it is a darkened understanding, it is a futile mind, and it is a culpable ignorance that they possess inside that mind of theirs. And then fourthly, Paul says they are hardened like stone. Notice what he says at the end of verse 18. This futile mindedness, This darkened understanding, this alienation because of the ignorance that is in them, is due, Paul says, to their hardness of heart. They have hearts like stone. They don't have that that fleshy heart, that uh, supple heart, the heart that can be molded and shaped into the image of God, that heart that can be moved with compassion, that heart that can be moved toward love for Christ. They don't have those things, and because of that, their minds, their understanding, their life with this culpable ignorance produces the kind of hardness of heart or is due to their hardness of heart, which is nothing more than a heart of stone. And I said last time, if you meet someone who exhibits the qualities Uh, like are portrayed here by Paul, a futile mind, a darkened understanding, a culpable ignorance, and hardened hearts like stone. If someone possesses these kinds of qualities of mind in a sustained and settled way, you can be certain that they don't know Christ. They don't know Christ at all. And Paul wants to remind them. Honestly, he wants to jolt them into the reality that that's not who you are that's not the way you think so please in every way do your best not to think like non-christians think and then secondly if you remember the second outline point that i gave you it's very much like the first but it speaks of the behavior of christians in their uh, of non-christians in their life and it is this don't do what non-Christians do. Not only are we not to think like non-Christians think, but we're not to do what non-Christians do. And what do they do? Verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If you remember last time I said that that concept of callousness is the idea of being so insensitive to the things that you're doing in your life that you don't feel the pain. You don't have a conscience that says, maybe I ought not to do this. Maybe this isn't right to do. Maybe I should refrain from this action. No, non-Christians have such a callousness about what they're doing and it's coming now from that futile mind, from that darkened understanding, from that alienation due to that culpable ignorance and the hardness of their hearts. It, it comes from their thinking first and it produces the kind of behavior to which they are utterly callous. And of course you can see that in the world in which we live. Just turn on your television. Just listen to the radio. Just just hear the mayhem that is around us at every point. And you can see that there's a callousness. Uh, it's like skin for which you would prick with a sharp pen and have no response. And that is the non-Christian life. That's their behavior. In fact, Paul even says here that they have given themselves up to things. And the first thing he says is sensuality. And I mentioned to you that that, guy, that idea is licentiousness. No boundaries. Complete freedom because they, they have their uh, consciences checked not to anything sensitive but to everything gross. And they are, they are filled with sensuality. Unrestrained sensual appetites. Engrossed in perversion of all kinds with no shame or no embarrassment. And then he uses the word greedy. Greedy. Greedy, the concept of someone who says, I want more. They're never satisfied. Greedy. And in this case, he says, thirdly, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Uh, They make it their job. They make it their profession to pursue their sensual appetites, their impure lifestyle. And if you, for instance, were a person who wasn't converted to Christ as a young person, maybe you lived the the first portion of your life, say, for instance, as a teenager, or maybe even as a young man or a young woman. Maybe you went through your college time. Uh, Maybe you actually lived for many, many years outside of Christ. You probably know what I'm talking about, the idea of being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what often these non-Christians are being characterized by. It's a sad picture, it truly is. And Paul, again, wants to shake us up by saying, that's not who you are. That's not the lifestyle you should be living. That's not the way you're thinking like non-Christians think, like what you did as the Ephesian Gentiles of yesteryear. But that's not who you are. And he says, thirdly, and we were there when we were wrapping up last time, What he says, instead of those two things, not thinking like non-Christians think and doing like non-Christians do, he says, thirdly, do what you have heard and been taught in Jesus. Do that. Don't do the other things. Don't think like they think. Don't do what they do. But actually, in your life, do what you have heard and been taught in Jesus. And it begins by outlining what that looks like in verse 20, all the way through verse 24, he says, but, that strong contrast, but that, that kind of thinking and that kind of lifestyle that he's described in verses 17, 18, and 19, here's that contrast, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming, and he says, I'm assuming in a confident way, assuming that you have heard about Him, about Christ, and that you were taught Him, taught about Christ, as the truth is in Jesus. And you remember I told you, the truth that's in Jesus is the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The truth that He can take that sinful thinking of your past and that sinful behavior of your past and he can transform it from the very moment you're engaged in those things and all of a sudden your eyes can be opened your ears can be unstopped and you see and you hear the reality of what you're doing and what you're thinking and you say something like this what am I doing where is this life taking me how could I be thinking such thoughts how could I be doing this? And and in a moment in time, in the twinkling of the eye, you can begin with a sensitive conscience and with a an awareness, an immediate awareness that like Adam and Eve in the garden when they were naked and therefore ashamed and had their bodies covered because of that nakedness, they suddenly and immediately became aware that something wasn't right. And of course, the Bible says all the way back in Genesis that God covered them even with animal skins, which implies that there was some kind of sacrifice occurring for which they needed a covering. And spiritually, it's the same with us. Paul tells them, this is what you were like in your thinking and your behavior, and you're not like that anymore, this strong contrast, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Uh, the truth that you heard, that's the truth of the gospel, of the good news. That's clearly what he's he's referring to here. And this good news, it, it actually showed you your nakedness, spiritually speaking. And you realized it. And you responded. And you responded to the truth of the gospel. And you bowed the head of your life to the lordship of christ and you said lord what 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 was i thinking what was i doing how could i even be involved in such things and your conscience immediately began to be so sensitive to the reality of the sin of your life the sin of your heart you were undone you were like that woman at the well jesus jesus identified confronted the sin of her life and she realized i'm a serial portrayer of immorality in this man's presence this man is no mere man he's a prophet could this man be the messiah and he's found me out and he's found my life and my lifestyle and she runs back into town and she tells everyone around her come and see the man who told me everything that i did her conscience was immediately awakened to the truth of her being ashamed about her life and Paul says, that's the way you learned Christ. That's the way you learned Christ. The truth that is in Jesus and everything you heard about Him and everything that you were taught in Him. And what is that? The truth. The truth that is in Jesus. And here's where we are tonight. Here's what it is. Three things that He tells us that we've heard by way of the gospel and that we've been taught about the truth that is in Jesus, about what we should be living like. This is the contrast between what he characterizes them in their past life to who they are now. And there are three things. Do you see them there? Verse 22 is one of them. To put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life. Note that, please. Your former manner of life And that life is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that's the first one, and we're going to talk at length about that one. Here's the second one, and to be renewed, or to be made new in the spirit of your minds. All the things that characterize those non-Christians and what they think, is now being renewed because you have been born again, you've been regenerated, your eyes have been opened, you see the truth for what it is, You're naked and ashamed. You realize you're undone, just like that woman at the well, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like you and me when we were converted to Christ. We saw it. We saw it for the first time. Jesus revealed it to us, and now we're on a new path and a path of renewal in the spirit of our minds. Our minds are being recalibrated. Our minds are being recalibrated to the truth of God's word and we're sensitive more now to God's word than we would ever have been sensitive to the dictates of the world. That's the second one, verse 23. And then the last one, verse 24, and to put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And do you see the contrasting parallels there between the old man and the new man. Here's the old man. He is corrupt through deceitful desires. And here's the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Now that can't be more contrastive than that. The old man, corrupt, deceitful in their desires. The new man, created... After the very likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Folks, that's, that's two different paths entirely, right? I mean, that's how you tell Christians and non-Christians apart. Non-Christians are on a path with futile minds, darkened understanding alienated from God because of this culpable ignorance in their lives due to the hardness of their stony hearts. That's their path. That's their road. That's their way. That's what they do. That's what they think. That's how they behave. The path of the new man created in the very likeness of God, rationality, which includes the renewal of my mind, which includes the very conforming of my life in true righteousness and holiness. That's our path. That's our way. That's what we think. That's what we do. That's who we are. You see the contrast that he's setting up here? That's why it's absurd for somebody who who exhibits the characteristics of the old man to say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Oh, yes, I I, I know that, that these things may appear to characterize me, but I'm really a Christian. And you say, well, what evidence is there? What evidence is there that gives us any sense and gives you any sense in the deep recesses of your own mind that you're on the right path? And then, of course, there are those who are on that right path who say, I'm hot after God. I'm panting like the deer after the water brooks. I want to know Christ. I want to know His Word. And when I do sin, and when there's anything from my past life, the former manner of my life, that actually slips back into my mind, or slips back into my behavior, and I actually do that thing, because yes, Christians do sin, I hate The thought of that. I hate the fact that I sinned in that way momentarily, but I sin nonetheless. And it grieves me, and it convicts me, and it challenges me to want to be as far away from that as I can possibly be. Yes. That's a person who, though he or she may be sinning at that moment, is also grieved because of that sin, and they want to be separated from that sin, even the very presence of it. Why? Because they're a new man. They're a new man. Now, I want to be real practical with you tonight, and the rest of the way we go is going to be very, very practical. I want to show you how consistent Paul is with the idea of being either old man or new man, right? What he sets up, in his theology, Pauline theology, is what we might call old man, new man. And I'm going to show you this, and I hope it will be fresh in your thinking. It will be encouraging to you, and it will also show you the stark contrast between what is the life in the old man status and what is life in the new man status. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is going to be fun, I believe, because it's going to show you the very consistency of Paul's language, when he, especially when he characterizes people as either old or new, either old creation or new creation, either old man or new man. This is really, really powerful teaching from the Apostle Paul, and Romans 6 is where we can begin, all right? Romans chapter 6. And I want you to see the consistency of Paul's language when he uses these terms, old man and new man, to talk about non-Christians and Christians, all right? Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 1, for instance, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That means continue to be mastered by sin, continue to be dominated by sin. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, no way. It shouldn't happen. It cannot happen. As your grandmother would used to say, perish the thought. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, if we have died to the reality of sin's domination in our lives, if we've died to that, if we've been separated from that, then how can we continue to live habitually and characteristically in sin? He says it can't happen. It absolutely cannot happen. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and he uses a little bit of a different metaphor there, the idea of baptism means to be dipped into. If we've been dipped into Christ Jesus, were we not also dipped into his death? Yes. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by being dipped into death. In order that, or for the purpose that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, as Christians, might walk in what? Newness of life. Do you see that word new there? Newness of life. The first four verses, very, very clear. If you say you're a Christian, and I want everybody to examine in their own hearts, I'm a Christian. I'm a professing Christian. That's that's my testimony, that's my life, that's what I say about myself, that's how I characterize myself. Well, if that's true, then you can't possibly continue to be living under the utter domination of sin in your life without the ability to rid yourself of it. You can't. He says, if you have died with Christ, using that metaphor of baptism, if you've been dipped, as it were, into Christ, that, that deadness going under the water, and if you've been raised up with Christ, just as someone who's baptized comes up out of the water, then you are raised, just like Christ was raised from the dead, you and I are raised to walk in newness of life. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. That's his point. And notice how consistently he continues. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And then these very clear words. Verse 6, We know that our old... And this is the problem with so many translations, even the problem with the ESV here, because it says the word self. And you know, Paul... He knows Greek. He's writing in Greek. He would have had a very, very perfectly good word that he could have used here if he meant the word self. That's the Greek word phusis. But he doesn't mention phusis phusis here. He mentions anthropos, which is the Greek word for man. So let's translate it as Paul wrote it. We know that our old man, and then what's the tense? Was. Was crucified. What tense is that? Past tense. That old man was crucified. You say, well, who's the old man? Who, who, who's he talking about? What does that mean? Well, I want you to go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 12. Okay? In our little Bible study tonight, here's chapter 5, verse 12, and I'll show you what old man and new man means to Paul. Notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one Man, right? Who was that? Adam, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul is talking about here, I wish we had time to develop all those phrases there, but it's it's enough to say this. When Paul sets up the idea of one man and another man, yea, even the old man and the new man, he's talking about two heads of a race. One head of one race is the Adamic race. That's the race of Adam. Adam. And you know what kind of race that is? Because He plunged us into sin because of His sin? It's the Adamic race of sin. It's the sin race. It's the race that's dominated by sin. It's the race that can't do anything else but sin. It's the race of non-Christians. It's the race of the old life. It's the race of someone who is completely mastered by sin. Just like Adam was. And then it says He plunged all of us into sin. But he goes on to say, there's another man, and that man is also head of another race, and that man is Christ, and that's a race where the Spirit dwells. That's a race where sin has been vanquished. That's a race where sin has been dealt with. And he says in verse 15 of Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Do you see what he's doing? He's setting up two heads of the race. One head is Adam, and that's a race of sin. He's characteristically, habitually in Adam, and he's sinning in the likeness of Adam. And then there's another man, Christ, who's the head of that race, and He is the one who's giving us a free gift. And what kind of free gift is that? Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. So all you have to do, even if you you put on a whiteboard or a blackboard, the idea of here's Adam and here are the manifestations of the Adamic race. Sin, judgment, hell, domination. Here's Christ. Here's the head of this race. Free gift. Justification. Life. The Holy Spirit. And they are about as opposite of the two as you could possibly have in the entire universe. That's what he's describing here in chapter 5. He goes on in verse 17. If, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam again, death reigned. Now he brings the idea of death. Death and hell and judgment. That's Adam. He's the head of that race. But much more... Will those who receive the abundance of grace... Oh, now he adds grace to Christ's column. And that grace, the abundance of it, and the free gift of righteousness, it reigns in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you just put it on the board. Adam, sin, death, hell, judgment. Christ, free gift, abundance of grace... Justification, righteousness. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, now he uses the word condemnation. So, one act of righteousness, now he's using the word righteousness to talk about Christ as the head of the race, that leads to justification and life for all men. For, as by one man's disobedience, now he uses another word, disobedience, the many were made sinners. So that by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, when He went to the cross, the many will be made what? Righteous. So He adds righteous. This this can't be any clearer. The one man, Adam. The one man, Christ. And as soon as He hits here with chapter 6, verse 6, He says, we know that our old man was crucified with Christ. The Adam life has been vanquished. Sin has been dealt with. Righteousness reigns in the Christ life. He's the head of that life. He's the king, the master, the Lord of that race. You see, when someone dances around with Christ and says, yes, Christ is my Lord, Christ is my Savior, but they live like they're living in Adam... It's a contradiction to say I'm living under the headship of Jesus Christ as the head of that race of mankind. Because when you look at that life, it is condemnation, it is sin, it is rebellion, and you look at this life and you see righteousness and victory and peace and the reigning of the life of Jesus Christ over his subjects. So when Paul uses this concept of old man and new man, he's not talking about the idea that there are two people inside you who are battling with each other like the old man and the new man, like an old nature and a new nature, that's not what he's saying at all. You want to see where else this is talked about? Look in your Bibles at Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17, you know it well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's the head of that race, right? He's the head of that race. He's the Lord of that life. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? New creation. You might have a marginal note that says new creature. He's a new creature. Why? Because he's head of a new race. Christ is the head of this new race. And if you're in Christ, you're a new creation in that race. You're a part of a new race of people. A new existence. You don't have to sin like before when you were dominated by it. In fact, you can't. You can't do that. It doesn't mean you aren't going to sin here and there. It means you, you aren't going to be dominated by it. That's what he's saying. Look at Galatians chapter 3. At Galatians 3 verse 27 for as many of you as were baptized and he used that in Romans 6 didn't he? the idea of baptism that's the metaphor for as many of you Galatians three twenty seven, as were baptized into Christ have what? put on Christ you've put him on you've, 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 you've embraced Christ and he's embraced you you've put him on like a new set of clothes, you have the new garments of Christ and His righteousness, and you have put on Christ. Look at Galatians, uh, excuse me, Colossians, chapter three. This is this is Paul at his best, describing. There's a new man status and an old man status, and I'm telling you, if you're Christians, you're new man. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. It's very practical, my friends. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you said if we're in Christ, if He's the head of our race then we're not going to be characterized by these things. And you know what? Paul says right here, you aren't characterized by them. How do I know that? Look what he says in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, notice this, seeing that you have put off the old man with its what? Practices. When you come to Christ, it doesn't mean that you are automatically and totally and perfectly new. You are new, but you're not perfectly new. And the whole of the Christian life is you and me becoming progressively newer and newer and newer based upon our relationship of being in Christ. You say, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Please explain that again. It's like this if you want to say it in very practical, easy-to-understand terms, be who you are. Be who you are. Be the person practically that you are positionally. If your position is being in Christ, then practically live out what you can do in your practice to be like Christ. And when there is the temptation to be immoral and impure and have passionate evil desires and to covet and he even adds in verse 8 to be angry to have wrath malice slander obscene talk lying verse 9 he says you can't do that in practice why because you're in Christ and therefore you ought to when those temptations come you ought to put them to death those are the three words Uh, of that first phrase in chapter 5, put to death. Very strong language. It means kill it. Mortify it. And that's what Christians want to do. Christians don't want to live in sins. Christians don't want to be dominated by sins. Whatever sins they may be, they want to put them off. They want to kill them. They want to mortify them. Because they are no longer a part of old man. They're a part of, New man with his practices, not the practices of the old man. And he says this as much, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices, Colossians 3, 9, and have put on the new man. And what is the new man's status? He's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, which is exactly what Paul says in verse 23 of Ephesians 4 you and I are being renewed after the very likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. What does that practically mean? You want to be holy. You want to be holy. God has set you apart for holy purposes and you want to live up to that holiness. What is righteousness? You are a person who wants to do right things. You want to have right thinking. You want to follow after God in true holiness and true righteousness. You want to live up to the reality of who you are. This is, this is very, very practical stuff. You want to talk about it from a theological viewpoint? It's what theologians have called the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is, you know, we even use that word in English, don't we, at times to say, well, so-and-so, that's indicative of who they are, right? It's characteristic of who they are. Well, guess what's indicative about the Christian? He's in Christ. He's in Christ. And then he says, it's imperative that you live out what it means to be in Christ. So follow the commands of what it means to live out your relationship to Jesus Christ. Live out all of the new man status of your life in Christ. You say, well, what does that look like? Look at Colossians 3.12. Put on then, like a new set of clothes, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." That's the new man's status. That's that's what it means to practically live out the imperatives of the New Testament. It's imperative that I live this way because of whose I am. Christ's. That's what he produces in the life of his subjects. That's what he does in their lives. And, And we are constantly being told... You're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, and that's a wonderful thing, and that's, imperative of, uh, that's indicative of who we are, but it's also imperative that you live up to the reality of your being in Christ. Sometimes theologians actually call it the already not yet. You're, you're already going to heaven. In fact, Romans 8 says it so clearly and so definitively, it actually uses the word glorified in the past tense. You were glorified. That means it's going to happen. It already has happened in a sense. It's already. But it's not yet. It's not yet. Because you've got to live like it in the pattern, the characteristic, the habits you form over your Christian life so that you will match up to your status of being part of new man. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 6 and you'll see this as well Galatians chapter 6 he talks about the newness of our in Christ status look at verse 15 for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but what a new creation that's what matters so whether he's talking about new man whether he's talking about new creation he's saying live up to who you are So if, in fact, this is true of you, and he says, and I'm assuming that it is, because you were taught in him, you heard about the gospel, and this is how you live your life as a result. You put off the old man's duds little by little by little by separating yourself from all those sins in which you formerly walked. And you put on the new duds. Now, you've already done it because you've confessed Christ, you believe in the gospel, and you've got the new duds on, but you rework all the threads of your new man's status in all of this love and pursuit and holiness and righteousness, and you are pursuing all of those things because it's right to do, and you are already, but not yet. You are already in Christ but you're not so totally new in Christ that you've been perfected. So keep pursuing, keep pursuing, keep pursuing. You know, there are, there are those theologians who are teaching even right now in our own day that the only kind of sanctification that you ought to pursue is the sanctification that says, look back to the cross. Just look back to the cross. Every time you're thinking about your sin, every time you're thinking about obedience, every time you're thinking about putting something to death, mortifying it, killing it, they say, no, no, no. Don't get hung up on all the do's of Christianity. Just think back to the cross. And you know what I say? That's only half the point. That's only fixating on the already. You've got to fixate on the not yet. You've got to focus your life on the not yet and the already. It's a both and prospect here. It's not an either or. Look, my sanctification is far more than me just looking back to the cross. As wonderful as that is. And it is wonderful. You think back to the cross. You think back to your own conversion experience. You think back to when you first confessed your sins, to when you first named Christ as Lord of your life and you began to follow Him as Lord and you looked at the cross and you were glorying in the cross and you loved the cross and you saw in the crucifixion the crucifixion of your own sins based upon Christ's sacrifice and you better meditate on the cross. But you best better also do more than that. You better also put to death the things that are earthly in you. That's the part that's the not yet. And is there a promise there? Yes, you're going to be glorified because you already have been in one sense. And he says in Philippians 1.6, does Paul for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will what? Perform it, perfect it, mature it until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh yes, you're on your way if you're a true Christian. But you and I have such a long way to go. And we pursue the Christian life with a vengeance because it's going to match up one day with the already, even in the not yet. And when he says in verse 24, put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness. That's that part of our glorious pursuit that makes total claim on your life. If you're a Christian... Paul's saying, Christ makes total claim on your life. You say, well, what does that mean? That means that when you're looking and breathing and acting and pursuing your new man status, it actually transforms you. It transforms your life. And what does it transform? What he says right in the middle, in verse 23, the renewing of your mind. Folks, there is no premium greater than your ability to think in the Christian life. There's no greater premium than thinking in the Christian life. Using your mind, seeing that mind renewed. By the way, it's in the passive tense here. It's a present passive uh, infinitive. And it means this, that the Holy Spirit is renewing the spirit of your mind's. He's working in your mind. He's changing your thought process. And wouldn't that stand a reason? Because he says this is how non Christians think, and those four hideous ways that they think. No wonder we need to have our minds renewed, and it's going to take the rest of our lives for that renewal to take place. Have you ever had thoughts like I'm sure uh, have been my thoughts and we have together, and driving down the road? and you're singing a hymn in your heart and you're loving Christ in your mind and you're wanting this, this exhilarating spiritual experience and as you're driving, you're thinking about Christ and you're probably even praying for your family and you're thinking about some passages that you've either memorized in the past or that you want to mem- memorize in the future and then all of a sudden, the most wicked, dastardly thought comes across your brain. And you're thinking about hurting someone. You're thinking about hating someone. You're thinking about someone in terms of you being jealous or covetous or any manner of evil. And you say to yourself, where did that thought come from? I was just praising God. You know where that thought comes from? It comes from the former manner of life that you used to live. And it's not completely cleaned out of your mind. And so what you have to do is say, Lord, renew the spirit of my mind and take those things captive to the obedience of Christ. Wash that thought out of my head. And you know, if you worked at that level, by asking God to renew your mind at that level, when the very thought comes in, and you want to do violence to that thought, you want to root it out of your life, you want to get it out of there as fast as you can, if you worked on that mind renewal at that level, then guess what would happen when actual temptation comes knocking at your door? You'd say, I'm not opening that door for you. I'm not going to do that. Are you crazy? If I do that, I'm not only thinking about sinning, but I'm actually doing the sin. If you checked sin at the door, then you would do far more greater levels of the sanctifying pursuits of your mind that God would be pleased and you would be far less conspicuously falling to temptation when it comes. I heard someone say once, Temptation is looking at Satan through the keyhole. Yielding is opening the door and letting him in. If you're at that mind level saying, I want to be renewed in the spirit of my mind after the likeness of God in true holiness and righteousness, then you're on your way to mind renewal in a mindless age. My friends, This is a message for all of us. Myself at the top of the list. Work in the spirit of your minds to be renewed after the likeness of our Creator in true righteousness and holiness. And and the bookends to that truth in the middle of verse 23 is putting off and putting on. You say, I thought that had already happened. It did in principle. And now... Let it begin in such a practice, such a habit, such a characteristic of your life that you are being renewed progressively in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ our Savior who is the image of God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are... so grateful that you took our mindlessness our vanity a futile way of thinking and transformed it first by imputing to us the righteousness of Christ and then by infusing in us through our sanctification the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. Father, we would be more noble Christians, to be sure, if at that mind renewal level in the thinking of our hearts at the very first moment, that because of our new man status, we don't want to sin against Christ, our Master, our, the head of our race, the new man. And we want to check right at the door, satanic temptation, and not yield to it by opening that door and letting Him in. We ask, Heavenly Father, that You would continue to renew us in the image of, Of yourself, which is the image of Christ, who is the perfect representation of your nature. And we ask, Lord, that you would allow this mind renewal to take such root in our lives that the blessed fruit of it is the kinds of things that Paul says in Colossians 3 to both put off and put on. Because we have put off and we have put on. It is already, but it is not yet. It is indicative of us that we are changed, but it is imperative that we continue to change. May we do so for Your honor, for Your glory, and for Your praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.